If you're uh, new or if you're in and out, in the last few weeks, I want to give you kind of a quick overview. What we're trying to do in our services here is to create a different kind of person. It's based on the assumption that in this day, people no longer follow Christ or the church because of the arguments or because of our worldview or our theology. They're looking for a difference in our lifestyle, you guys. And so it's, it's essential that we just live different lives. I think in the last 30 to 40 years, I've seen the church in my lifetime argue with the culture first over prayer in the public schools and then over Roe v. Wade, and then we were picketing abortion clinics, and then we piled on to those who had AIDS as if that were the, quote, curse from God, and now it's politics. But what we've seen is that the, the, the world, the, at least the Western culture, has gotten pretty tired of that. They've had it, and so they're moving the church uh, rightfully so, I think, onto the margins and no longer in the center of the debate. And while that may worry a lot of people, I think that's exactly where God wants us to be today. So it means we have to change our strategy, not from winning by evangelism or overpowering them with a more cogent worldview, but by living fundamentally different lives. People don't care what your worldview is, but they will watch your marriage and they'll watch your kids and how you live. And so the more we live differently and are quiet but firm about it, people will begin to follow us. So we're tracing what are the differences between uh, the people of God and the others. And we're noticing that it starts in subtle little currents, things that are undetected. They lie under the surface, such as whether you listen to wisdom or you listen to folly. You would not know this. Put two people up there, you couldn't tell which one was listening to wisdom and which one was listening to folly. But a little while later in their life, you'll notice a minor distinction between those who listen to counsel and criticism and those who are always resisting it. And they're not seeking counsel, they're always bucking the criticism. Again, you won't see a big difference, but it's a little more evident Watch them a few years later, and you'll notice a difference in their desires. Some people discipline their desires, and they restrain them, and so their desires become purified over time or informed, and other people follow their desires. They believe any desire is innate, and so they just pursue it, which leads to another one and still another one. Now, you're starting to see some differences in the way people's lives actually show up. As the series progresses, you'll see more and more obvious differences. We'll talk about the differences in people's speech or their language. When people start talking, you know which camp they're in, don't you? Are they really listening to wisdom or are they informed more by folly? Later on, we'll talk about the kinds of friends that people have. And later on, we'll talk about the dispositions. Some people are cheerful and happy and resilient, and other people are miserable and ornery, and then it gets worse over time. And we'll talk about families. Some people come from really strong families and others from weak families, and what we'll notice is that in every one of these differences, you can trace them back to earlier, smaller, subtler currents that a person is in. So the idea is choose the current because then 
the current chooses you. Be careful early in life or early in the process what you do because it will have consequences and pick up momentum. Are you with me? Oh, good. That's good. Look to the screen, and you'll see five benefits that people often give for work. High income, no danger of being fired, chances for advancement, short work hours, and more free time. Work is meaningful, gives me a feeling of accomplishment. 1973, uh, when the... uh, the social survey organization from the University of Chicago started tracking this. They were asking people, when you go to work or you are applying for a job, what is the number one reason you want this job? And back in those days, they asked them to rank them one through five. What they found from the year 1973 to the year 1994, 21 years, is that there was almost no difference in what people reported. Overwhelmingly, their number one reason for applying was they wanted work that was meaningful and gave them a feeling of accomplishment. 58% of the people said, that's the reason I want to go to work. The other trend for 21 years is that the bottom two were always the same. I want shorter work hours and more free time. Only 4% of the people said that 40 or 50 years ago. And I want a guarantee that I won't get fired. Only 6% of the people said that. Then, In 1995, for some reason, no one knows why, maybe because the statistics were always the same, the research stopped asking the question until 2006 when they brought the question back. And this time, when they put the same five things up there, they noticed a significant change in the percentages. Still first place was, I want meaningful work that gives me a sense of accomplishment, but the number now was 43%, not 58, a drop of 15%. Still down to the bottom who said, I want shorter work days and more free time. But the number was no longer 4%. It was up to 9%. And the people that said, I want to guarantee that I can't be fired, went from 6% to 12%. And another 13% put that as second place. Writing of this in his book, Coming Apart, the State of White America, from 1960 to 2010, Charles Murray says, we can't be sure about this. But it looks like white America today is showing less interest in meaningful work and more interest in shorter work days, more free time, and the guarantee of not being fired. When I read it, about three or four years ago, I started thinking, I think he's putting his finger on the other narrative. Not the one we hear about. It's a current that runs under the story of unemployment. More troubling to me was two studies done by the university, I should say, the University of Michigan. (laughs) Come on, go blue. (laughs) Some of you just need to relax, man. 
was done back in 1965, and they found that the difference between educated and uneducated, employed and unemployed, the amount of hours that either class spent in leisure was none. They both spent the same number of hours in leisure back in 1965. In the year 2005, 40 years later, Bureau of Labor Statistics found that those who were employed and educated saw their leisure time go down six hours, and if they were unemployed and uneducated, they found their leisure time go up eight hours per week. Now, one more time, 40 years ago, the numbers were the same, but 40 years later, you start to see some disparity. Just last month in the Atlantic Monthly, in an article called The Paradox of Work in America, of Free Time in America, they noted that the paradox is quite simply this, whereas years ago, you worked hard in order to one day be free so you could have leisure and you avoided poverty so you would not be the slave to labor, what we're finding today is those who have work and more income are actually less time to play. They're working harder and their lives are harder. And those who are unemployed, finding their leisure of time go way up, three-fourths of them said the study are playing video games in the day. That's also true in other studies. There's the current again. You hear it? There's something larger happening than unemployment. That's all you'll hear about, but there's something underneath it. I told you back in January the study done by Gallup poll that found 30% of those who work today are engaged in their work. I mean, they are committed to and they understand what they are doing. They invent new ideas. They show up all the time. All new business is due to them. 70% of the people who work today are in some form of disengagement. Think about this. Almost one in five people who have jobs in America today are fully disengaged when they go to work. What they mean by that is they are more likely to show up late, more likely to call in sick, more likely to quit, more likely to complain, more likely to steal from the company, and they monopolize more of their manager's time. There it is again. There's another current that's underneath it. While all we hear lately is the problem of unemployment, which is a huge problem, in our country. Underneath it, we're starting to see symptoms of unambition. Unemployment and unambition are not the same thing. One may be unemployed, but very ambitious. And one may be employed, but very unambitious. You still with me? Yes? There may be another narrative that's happening in our country right now that is not so much about the unskilled and the unemployed as it is about the unmotivated. It, 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 now again, this isn't everyone. You can't put everyone in that group. 
But one begins to wonder if there are not signs of a deeper illness. This is what drives me to Proverbs to think about this subject of ambition. I mean, I'm thinking I, I clearly must not struggle with this. And so I look into Proverbs and I find no surprise that Proverbs talks a lot about being ambitious and being unambitious. Here's a few examples. Look to the screen. Lazy hands make a man poor. That's <laughs> I grew up believing this, but diligent hands bring wealth. The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. The way of the sluggard is always blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Do not love sleep or you'll grow poor. My dad used to say that. Stay awake and you'll have food to spare. He who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill or his share of poverty. I found that there's a strong correlation between ambition and prosperity and unambition and ruin. So I started thinking, then, what are the patterns of people that are unambitious? Clearly, I thought, this is not me. Dude, I'm somewhere between 70 and 80 hours a week, and I love every hour of it. Some of you are in that category. Are you not? You pour yourself into your jobs. No one has to tell you you're self-motivated and you're creative. And so I'm thinking, man, I got this. But when I started putting the more than 50 verses into clusters and how it defined the unambitious, the question changed. The question is no longer, am I ambitious or unambitious? The question is, is there any unambition in my ambition? Remember, it starts as a current, you guys. It's not something obvious and overt. It starts as a subtle, almost trivial pattern of behavior. But if unchecked, it starts to roll over time and to become a habit, which becomes a character, which becomes a destiny. And so the question is, as hard as I work, is there any unambition in it? It turns out that the cure for unambition is not more hours, it's more discipline. In some cases... It's less hours and more focus. And this is where I really had a hard time. Am I just doing my therapy? Let me give you some of the clusters I found. One of them is dreams without action. Proverbs says, the appetite of a laborer works for them. Because their hunger drives them on, while the cravings of a sluggard will be the death of him, because his hands refuse to work. The fool is always asleep, and so they're always dreaming. And because they're always dreaming and they're never active, their dreams get really, really big and grandiose because they're never tempered by reality. I'm thinking of the 16-year-old kid that leaned over my desk some years ago, and he, with his lanky form, he said to me, Pastor Steve, I can't decide whether I should be a cardiac surgeon or a neurologist. What do you think God wants me to do? 
I knew the kid. So I said, I think God wants you to finish high school. <laughs> that was 20 years ago, and he still hasn't. But he has dreams the size of Texas. I have this. There's always the book I'm going to write, the movement I'm going to start, the meeting I'm going to call, or the thing I'm going to do. And then the strange thing happens. You sit there and you imagine how good you will feel when you do it. And then, because you already feel a little of it, you go, well, that was good. Let's move on. We find as we get older that life does not assume the shape of your dreams. It assumes the shape of your, of your, of your discipline and your decisions. You become what you decide and what you discipline yourself to become. You do not become what you want to become. Another cluster I noticed is called plans without deadlines. Now it got personal. Proverbs says, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? Then he says, a little extra sleep, a, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands here to rest. This is a person who is always talking about what they're going to do, always working on it, always making plans. But there is a conspicuous lack of deadlines. They never say, let me finish this project and then I'll go play. They always say, let me play a little longer and then I'll get back to the project. They're waiting for the perfect condition, even though they don't know what the perfect condition is. And they never hold themselves accountable and they don't like being held accountable. Derek Kidner says, they never have the nerve to utterly refuse to do something, but they simply postpone it. And so by inches and by minutes, their opportunity slips away. I found a category called conflict without responsibility. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Commitment without discipline. Proverbs says the lazy man does not roast his game. That is, he catches something, but then he doesn't finish it by making it something he can eat so it goes bad on him. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he won't even bring it out to his mouth again. This is a person with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> man, I have this in spades. I'm sitting in there writing a message, and I'm thinking, I need to look this statistic up on the Internet. So I go to the Internet, and when I pop it open on my phone, Yahoo Sports pops up. And, it, you know, it makes me think, well, while you're here, look at what's happening in sports. And, of course, when you go to sports, it makes you think of the market. And so I'm thinking, I wonder what the market is doing today. And then I'm kind of following the election from the side. And then I go from there and there's one that says email. And I think to myself, why not? <laughs> and then I start thinking, what was that statistic I was supposed to look up? So, so this is a person 
who is always multitasking. They're always pulling off of something and restarting something. But the research is now showing us that multitasking is actually switch tasking because every time you go to do something else, you have to disengage mentally and burn more energy of the brain to re-engage on something else. So you're actually, I know you guys think that you're running the world by doing this, but the evidence shows that you're losing almost 30% of your day by multitasking. One study found that the person who sits in front of their computer in the office today checks their email, Facebook, Twitter, or goes online on average, brace yourself, 37 times an hour. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, is that all? Get a job, right? This is a perennial temptation for us, isn't it? It pulls us off all the time. The last cluster I found then was called conflict without responsibility. A lazy person, says Proverbs, has trouble all through his life. But the path of the upright is easy. The lazy person is full of excuses. They're always saying, I can't go outside. There might be a lion in the road. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lion out there. This is a person who is always exaggerating or overestimating how much work or how much opposition they're going to do. And when the opposition comes, and it inevitably does, they always blame the opposition. They never blame themselves for not taking responsibility for failing to act. They usually blame the opposition. There's always something they need that they didn't have, always something somebody's doing that they shouldn't be doing, and it holds them back. Well, here's where I'm, I mean, I was talking to my uh, daughter, uh, who's now married up in Wisconsin, just about four or five weeks ago. I said, hey, I'm going into this um, series on the Proverbs. And, you know, I was thinking, Ash, it must have just been just rich for you to be raised by two really wise parents, you know, that were just like spitting Proverbs every... She's, oh, brother. I said, can you think of any of these Proverbs? No, Daddy, I can't. Think, I said, were there any Proverbs that you heard again and again? She said, find a way. That's all you said was find a way. I said, wow, that's wise. <laughs> she said, that is so dumb. I said, were there any others? She said, yeah, 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 yeah. Following the course of least resistance is what makes people in rivers crooked. I went, wow, that is priceless. Man. Did I say that? That was so stupid, Dad. If you are hard on yourself, life will be a little easier on you. But if you are easy on yourself, life is going to be hard. I said, write that down. She said, I don't need to. All of these have to do with hard things, with 
following through with taking responsibility. So here's the deal. I found myself looking at this list of things, and I started thinking, you know what? Even though I'm 70 to 80 hours a week and loving every minute of it, I'm starting to find that some of those subtle currents are there. I'm getting lost in them. And I can say, I really can, that those are not that big of a thing, that I can still do my job and get that. I mean, that's after a while, you learn how to do that. But you guys, what scares me is not just what's going to happen to me. What scares me is what I might be leaving on the table. What will remain undone. Because the clock ran out. And I know it seems the younger we are that there's a long clock. But those old people are right. It's moving faster than we think. And so I started looking back into Proverbs and saying, what is it that I can do to discipline my ambition? How do I get in front? I clearly have ambition, but it's somewhat tainted at times. So God, how can I guide it and steer my ambition? The problem, again, is not my employment. Even if I'm retired, the problem is my ambition. I found you guys that I even look at retirement with unambition. I see it as this giant weekend at the end of life that just fades seamlessly into more unambition in heaven. <laughs> Clearly, this cannot be the way the ancients or God himself saw things. Clearly, it's not. So what does Proverbs have to say? I found that it falls into two categories. One of those is a parable of a farmer. The other is the parable of an ant. And the parable of the farmer, let's go to it. He says, I went past the field of a sluggard. It's a lazy person. And thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. And I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw. The message says, the fields preached me a sermon. <laughs> A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. What I love about the proverb is that everything is in it from the habit to the character to the destiny. Isn't it all there? It starts with an act. Just an hour longer, just another day off, that rolls into a habit. Take it easy, I said to myself, that soon became a character. The field is overgrown with weeds, which rolled into a destiny. Poverty moves in for the rest of my life. It seemed like the entire river was just moving through that passage. The fool, says Proverbs, is someone who forgets what time it is. Let me say it differently. We always think that we have more time than we actually have. And the reason is we think that opportunity is within our control. We believe that we can plant not when it's planting season, but when we feel like planting. And then all we have to do is just wait the obligatory two months and then we can harvest. 
We sometimes do not realize that opportunity is the result of a variety of things, most of which we cannot control. So rather than waiting for the perfect opportunity, Proverbs says, seize the opportunity that you have. For the opportunity that you want is probably one or two layers below the opportunity that you have. This is a big thing today. Because this culture, this generation is more educated than any previous generation. And when we go to work tomorrow, we're tempted to believe that some work is below us. And what's more, we're tempted to believe that that discontent is actually a virtue. It's a sign of leadership. And so we'll wait for the perfect opportunity to roll along, not knowing that the one we want will come in the fall when you harvest, not in the spring when you plant. Now, here's what I'm saying. There are a lot of us here this morning with opportunities all around us which we have not even recognized as opportunities because it's not looking the way we thought it would look. So the question this morning for us is not so much what do you want to do with your life? The question is, what is before you now? Seize it now. Whether we are employed, retired, or unemployed, there are opportunities at different degrees all around us. And they come when they come, and they come in layers. It's kind of quiet in here. There's another parable of an ant. He says in Proverbs chapter 6, go to the ant, look at the ant, and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and it gathers its food in the harvest. I made a note to myself when I read, he has no ruler, I mean, he has no deadlines, he has no boss, there is no union, there's no threat, there's no syllabus, nothing is motivating this thing, and yet it is gathering several times its weight every day. And the point of the parable is quite clear. Here is the smallest thing doing something many times its size. Each night when I come home from a run, I sit on the steps while the engines shut down. Somebody got to do something about these ants, man. They are all over the place. And as I'm sitting there dripping on the sidewalk, I'm watching these things. They're going everywhere. And I'll admit it, I was thinking just a couple weeks ago, man, it'd be boring to be an ant, man. That'd be awful. I mean, think about it. Would it not? You wake up in the morning, and what are you going to do? Same thing you did yesterday, which was like the day before. I sit there and watch these things, and I start thinking, and then he goes back to his hold, and he gets up and does it again. He don't have television. He don't have a smartphone. It'd be an awful existence. The brilliance 
is in the regiment. Let me say it differently. Everyone who produces something significant, if you look underneath their act, there is a tight regiment of discipline that they almost never vary from. The brilliance is in the boredom. The genius is in the boredom. It's in the mundane, the repetition, the order, the structure, the discipline. And it does not matter whether you're a scientist or an artist. It's the same. Go to the ant, he says, and take responsibility. You live in the colony, but do the thing in front of you every day with structure and order and own it. Own it. I was talking to a pastor not long ago, and he's an assistant pastor in a church, and he was complaining about his church. You guys, he didn't like... Uh, he didn't like the job on that day anyway. He said the senior pastor was in the way, the board wasn't cooperating, and the people weren't really on board. And while he was venting, I just remember interrupting him and saying, wait a second, wait a second. Let me ask you a question. If you were in charge, do you know what you would do? Well, he said, well, I don't really know. I hadn't really thought about that. I said, well, you, you, you understand that one difference between uh, a leader and everybody else says the leader is not only complaining, they're actually moving beyond the complaint to some kind of resolution. So have you thought past the complaint to think about what you might do if you were in charge? He said, let me think about it a while. And out loud he began to process. And finally he said, yes, I think I got it. I know exactly what I would do. And I said, and do you have the courage to act on your convictions? Or will you default the way most people do and say, I can't because it isn't my job and they don't listen to me and I'm too young and I don't have time? Do you have the courage to act on your convictions? He said, but if I do that, I'm going to get all caught. Yes, you will, but there will be too much resistance. I said, wait a second. Do you have the freedom to scale your convictions down and do them in your own department when you go to, he said, I probably, I, yeah, I probably could do that. I thought, take responsibility. Own it. Listen to me, church. The work that we are doing, the hours that we are spending, even in our unemployment, are not wasted hours. We're not building something that God's going to tear down anyway. We're not planning something he's just going to plow under the ground at the end of time. We're not fixing a painting that he will throw onto the fire. We are instead working alongside of God with every good hour of our lives 
This is what I want you to know. Your hours and your time and your energy is not wasted. Every time you teach someone to read, every time you help someone get further in their field, every time you listen with an open heart, every time you help someone manage their finances or heal their marriage or strengthen their home, you're not simply biding time waiting for God to come and do it all himself at the end. You are, in fact, working alongside of God in the present day. And he will one day at the end take everything that you have done and pull it into his perfect world. It will be there at the end of time. So my call this morning is for us to marshal the hours and the effort and to become, yeah, that's right, double down on it and to become even more disciplined so that we might give them to the use of Christ. What opportunity is around you that maybe you haven't seized for one reason or another? What project did you start some time ago and you haven't finished it yet because you're going to move on to something else? Maybe God is saying to you, no, no, not something new. Go back and finish that. What have you always wanted to do? And it was always some other good reason that you couldn't do it. Maybe God is saying to you, put both hands to that. Pour yourself into that. What if you're in school and you're waiting for the degree, which, by the way, only gets your first job. Everyone after that will come from ambition. Maybe God is saying to you, pour yourself into the hours that you have in the school. Just a few months ago, we were across the hall over here, and um, I was sitting with a couple of pastor friends of mine that I meet with in uh, Marion from time to time, and we talk about ministry, about laity, about future and things, and the subject on that day was the subject of faith and work, and one of my friends, Alex Husky, told a story, um, and when he told it, I thought, this is Gold. I, I got to get this. So I asked the media group, I said, is there any way you could find that little clip and play it for us at the end of the message? Because I want people to see how practical this is. Let's go to the screens and watch what Alex has to say. When I first became a Christian, now I grew up in a Christian home. But I had not dedicated my life. I had not submitted my life to Christ. But I was in college, and I was working for GMC Trucks in Flint, Michigan. For one reason, the plant manager did not like me. I don't know. I didn't smell the way he wanted me to smell. I don't know. He didn't like me. But he was determined to break me. And I remember he came down to to the area where I worked in parts distribution and said to me, from now on, when you're done down here with your shift, you're to go and clean the executive bathrooms. Now, these were executive bathrooms, but they were the filthiest restrooms I've ever seen in my life. And I had very little cleaning supplies. I was extremely angry. 
And over the course of a week, I cleaned those restrooms to the point that at the end of that week, if you wanted to, I wouldn't advise it, but you could eat in there. And I didn't know we had dignitaries coming from Detroit at that time. And I was up cleaning the restrooms the next week. And this gentleman walked in and he looked, he said, wow, what happened in here? And I just knew, man, I'm going to catch it now. And he walked out. And then he came back. He said, don't you work in parts distribution? And I said, yes. He said, why are you doing this? I said, well, plant manager gave this as an added assignment. He said, hmm, okay. Last I heard, by Wednesday of that week, I got called up to the front office. Two gentlemen sitting in the chairs, plant manager and the gentleman, other gentleman that I saw from Detroit. Plant manager said, you won't be cleaning the restrooms anymore. I said, oh, okay, did I do something wrong? And the other gentleman said, no, you're being promoted. I didn't set out to get promoted. I set out to serve with excellence. They didn't understand that my service to excellence was not based on me having an attitude, but it was based on the fact that I figured out something, that if I'm going to serve my God, I need to serve him in all things with excellence. That boy can preach. So this morning, as we come to the table, to the sacrament, I want you to bring your labor, not your employment, not your jobs. I want you to bring your labor and your work and your hours with you.